Good evening. Uh, we're, we're continuing our study of the Baptist Catechism. Uh, specifically, I say this every time, just always want to remind you, because our edition is a little bit different from the classic one. Uh, our, we're using the edition found in the white catechism booklets that we give away here at the church. As always, if you don't have one or you've lost yours, get one. Uh, and this evening, we come to question number 11. And this question has to do with God's sovereignty. Our question is, what are the decrees of God? Now, this evening, uh, we come to consider what, what is, sadly, uh, a distinctive of Reformed theology. Right, That it's distinct to the Reformed tradition is sad. And the distinctive is this. We believe that God foreordains all things. And let me be explicitly clear. I mean all things. Not some things. Not most things. Not good things. Not bad things. Not the big things. Not the small things. But all things. As our confession says in chapter 3, paragraph 1. I'll read the whole paragraph to you. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein nor is violence offered to the will of the creature nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Amen. Amen. That's one of my favorite paragraphs in our entire confession. God is God. He is the sovereign king of all things. Now, this doctrine is hated by many. It's hated. Uh, even by many whom we would call brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that is sad. Uh, many kick against the goads of this truth and reject the plain teaching of the word of God at this point, uh, but they do so inconsistently. Um, and we praise God. I won't get into how they're inconsistent, but we praise God for their inconsistencies, for it is precisely because they are inconsistent and they're inconsistent in their denial of God's sovereignty that they do not red, run headlong into heresy and a full denial of the faith. And we pray for them that they would come to understand the glory of of God's sovereignty as we have. Um, but unlike them, we glory in this truth. For all of the difficulties it may conjure in our minds, and if we're going to be honest, it does sometimes. For all of the difficulties it may conjure in our minds and all the questions it may raise, nevertheless, we praise God for his complete sovereignty over all things. We praise him that he foreordains all things and therefore all things are under his control for his glory and our ultimate good. To paraphrase Jonathan Edwards, absolute sovereignty is what we love to ascribe to God. We love to say with the psalmist, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We love to glory in the kingship of our God. And this evening, that's what we're going to do, right? I'm not going to spend time today teaching against the errors of Arminianism and its cousins, I, I would much rather uh, prefer to declare the truth than to spend all evening refuting error. I personally find that often simply focusing on the truth clears the head and warms the heart more than presenting falsehood and then knocking it down. Although if you've known me for more than five minutes, I do believe that there is a place for that uh, in Christian theology and in preaching. Uh, so then we will consider the plain biblical truth that God has foreordained all things whatsoever comes to pass. 
and that he has done so in perfect holiness, righteousness, wisdom, and goodness, and that he's done it all freely and for the glory of his name. So brothers and sisters, first I will pray, and then we will consider the assertion of our catechism. After that, we will be good Bereans and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And then I'll answer a couple of questions that this doctrine may bring to mind, and then we'll see what application uh, can be made to our hearts in light of the truth of God's foreordination of all things. So then, let's begin with prayer and seek God's help. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, thank you for another Sabbath day. I pray that we honored you in it, and if we haven't, as I know all of us have broken your fourth commandment in some way today in our heart or with our hands. God, we ask that you would forgive us and teach us how to keep the day, how to keep it holy. But now, Lord, we come to ask you, or we come to, to ask you for help to understand your word. Help us to gladly receive whatever you've revealed about yourself and your will and your ways. Give us faith to receive the pure word of God and show us how the truth of your word applies to us. By your spirit, Seal the word to our hearts and sanctify us. Teach us to trust you, rest in you, and praise you. Glorify yourself in us by your word and spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so our question this evening. I ask, as always, that you would read the answer with me. Question, what are the decrees of God? Answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, by which, for his own glory, he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. Let's do it again. Question, what are the decrees of God? Answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, by which, for his own glory, he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. All right. I always feel like I'm in my living room whenever I make you repeat the catechism. I say it every month. This is what I do to my kid. So let's begin by first considering what our catechism is saying. What's being asserted here? I found another version of the catechism. I think it's an updated version of the Westminster, actually, where it agrees lockstep. Um, Westminster is shorter, but a modernized version is this. God's decree is his eternal plan whereby, according to his decretive will and for his glory, he foreordained everything that comes to pass. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, but maybe th there's even a simpler way to say it. God's decree is what he has said. God's decree is what he has said. To decree, if nothing else, is to say something. And it is to say something with utter authority. And for God to decree, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence... But for God to decree, for God to say something, is for him to say it with all the power and authority of God. So what God says will be, will be. He speaks with the force of law. His word is effectual. He cannot be contradicted. But this decree that we're considering this evening isn't about commandments given to men. It's about what will come to pass. That's what we're talking about with God's decree so then, as our catechism says, God's decree is his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, by which, for his own glory, he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. God's decree is what he said will happen, and it includes every person, every being, every action, 
every event, every word, to speak like my mother, every everything. Every everything. Now, it may be the arrogance of youth uh, or a, a lack of understanding the intention of the wording of our catechism, but there is one place in it that I don't like. Uh, our question asks, what are the decrees of God? Plural. I'm not a fan of that wording, decrees. I prefer to speak of God's decree in the singular. One decree. And that's because, properly speaking, if you crack a systematic theology, there's agreement here. Properly speaking, God's decrees are actually one decree. They are his eternal purpose. Even as our catechism says, that's a singular purpose. They're his eternal purpose for the world. But I think I know why our catechism has it in the plural. Uh, we speak of a plurality of decrees because God has decreed everything. And in order for us to begin to talk about all that God has decreed, we have to break them into categories. Right? God's decree concerning the salvation and damnation of men. God's decree concerning life and death. God's decree concerning what animals would exist. God, right? So we break it into categories, and in, the, in that way we speak of it in the plural. But in reality, God has one decree that encompasses all things that will come to pass. He has one will, and, and all things are contained in that singular will. Furthermore, to do a little bit of theology proper, uh, he's timeless, He's eternal, and since he is timeless, he does not exist within a succession of moments, right? So he doesn't decree one thing and then decree another thing. He decrees all in, and again, our, our language fails here to say all in a moment, but God is outside of time. What I'm getting at is his decrees are one in him. He does not decree in a succession of moments. So notice once again, just, and I had to point this out, our God is incomprehensible, Right? Uh, to, even when we talk of his decree, we have to break it into categories in order to fit our finite human minds to just talk. Right? So truly our God is high above us. Um, so as I've said already, the decrees of God are his one eternal purpose for all things. And to speak humanly, that comes to expression in his foreordaining all things that comes to pass. Now let me take a moment and flesh out the language of our catechism a bit. First, what does it mean to foreordain? I know I'm doing baby steps here, but it's good for us. What does it mean to foreordain? Uh, literally, to ordain beforehand. Uh, foreordain is, is basically synonymous with predestined, except that in theology, predestination usually refers to salvation, while foreordination is much broader often uh, in a more encompassing way. Uh, but the point is that God determines beforehand what will take place in time. Next, what does our catechism mean when it refers to his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will? This is actually one of my favorite parts. Uh, it's, it's simply stating that God's decree, right, his foreordination is of himself. It's of himself. God took counsel in himself. Uh, his foreordination is for his purpose. It's his will, his decision, his decree. Uh, that is God's decree is not contingent or dependent upon anyone or anything in all creation. If we make a plan, it's dependent upon many moving parts, is it not? This is why we have to cancel plans. It doesn't work that way with God. His decree is contingent upon nothing. Why? Because his decree comes from himself and none other. Third, what is the meaning of for his own glory? God decreed or foreordained everything for his own praise. 
God decreed all things to, in the end, and according to his will, glorify himself. The end of all things, right, to speak like a Puritan, like the end of all things, the chief end of all things, the purpose for all that comes to pass is God's praise, his own self-glorification. He has decreed what he has decreed so that he might be displayed in his creation according to how he wanted to display himself. And this was done in such a way that in one way or another, everything will praise him. Everything. So I think I'm paraphrasing John Piper here. God is in the business of making much of himself. And that's why he has decreed all that comes to pass, to make much of himself. And then last... What does our catechism mean by whatever comes to pass? I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but this must be reiterated because this is the sticking point. This is where Reformed theology tends to militate against the theologies of otherwise orthodox brothers and sisters. Whatever comes to pass means exactly what it sounds like it means. God's decree is completely exhaustive. Something I've, I've said to I, my mother, I'm thinking of my mother this evening. Something I've told my mother in the past. Mom, if something happens, God ordained that it would happen. If it happens, God ordained it. Whatever comes to pass. So allow me to summarize the assertion of our catechism. God's decree is his declaration from eternity what will come to pass in time. This decree is completely from him with no outside influences whatsoever. This decree is for his own praise and glory. And this decree is completely exhaustive and encompasses literally everything that happens, both in time and eternity. Once again, as our catechism says, God's decree is his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, by which, for his own glory, he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. So that's the assertion of our catechism. Let's now consider the scriptures and evaluate what's been said so far. And to do so, uh, I think a series of questions and answers will be helpful. So we're going to do a catechism about the catechism. Um, And just a quick thing, uh, I'm going to be referencing no less than a dozen portions of scripture this evening. You're not going to catch me. I'm not telling you not to try. I'm not telling you not to open your Bible. I'm saying I already have them written down. You're not going to catch me. Uh, But if you want a copy of my notes, I'll give them out. Just Just say what you want. So... First question, does God have a decree? That's the biggest question. Does the word of God tell us that God decrees things before they happen? Isaiah chapter 46 verses 8 through 10 answers yes. And here it is. It's one of the big texts that we go to. God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, I want to be clear. If you check the context of of this chapter, the immediate context of the passage I just read has a direct reference to God sending a nation against Israel to judge them. But within that, Verse 10 contains a broad truth. God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Again, that is God decrees. Declare, decree, same thing. God decrees the end from the beginning. 
The nation coming against Israel is just one example of this. But clearly, God says that he declares what will come to pass from the beginning or before there was anything. Brothers and sisters, this is his divine decree. Another text that shows us this, and this one requires a bit more reasoning through the text, is Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. The proverb says this. By the way, the proverbs are a treasure trove. Like, just read the proverbs a lot. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We got a reason through this. This text tells us that the Lord has a purpose that will stand. He has intentions for all things, just as men plan all kinds of things. And it is God's purpose that gives way to his decree. Right? If he has a purpose for all things, then he must determine all things. If not, here's the reasoning part. Let me say it again. If he has a purpose for all things, as this proverb says, then he must determine all things. If not, then his purpose is merely wishful thinking. And, if we, and, and we have to reject that. Because he can do all his holy will. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. The proverb itself says that God's purpose will stand. So it's not just wishful thinking. He will do all that he has purpose. So that he has a purpose for all things reveals that he has determined all things since his purpose will stand. Again, this is his divine decree. So God has a decree. I'll rest my case there. He has a decree. But does this decree extend to all future events? Consider Ephesians 1.11. Paul writes, in him, that is Christ, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, that is God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I think it's right there in the text. And I'm not trying to smart off. I think it's right there in the text. God works all things. And how does he work them? According to his purpose and the counsel of his will. Our being predestined to eternal life is one example of this that Paul is highlighting here. But nevertheless, the apostle states that God's will and purpose extends to all things. And as we've proven already, where God has purpose, God has decreed. For his purpose will stand. So then, his decree extends to all things. Now, I know that I just gave you a text that says all things, but I want to help that sink in a little more. I want to prove it a little bit more. So I'll use three categories of my own devising, right? They're very academic, very scholarly categories. Uh, the big stuff, the normal stuff, and the small stuff. That, that, that's, what, that's what we're going for. So let's see if God foreordains the big, normal, and small stuff. That is all things. First, the big stuff. I'm referring here to eternal matters, matters of salvation and damnation. Nothing is bigger than this. Nothing is bigger than this. So does God foreordain the salvation of sinners? Yes. Yes. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. You guys, some of you have this memorized. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It, it could not be any clearer. Again, I'm not trying to sound too harsh, but if anyone denies that God foreordains or predestines the salvation of all who are saved, it is because they have come to Ephesians 1 with a theological prejudice. I have no other category, really. The, the text says what it says. If someone is adopted through Jesus Christ, then they have come to faith in him. And if they have come to faith in Christ, they are justified. And if they are justified, they will receive salvation in the end. And Paul says that we were predestined, that it was foreordained by God that we would be adopted through Jesus Christ. And since our adoption was foreordained, so is everything else leading into the adoption and coming out of the adoption. It's a golden chain that you can't break. Therefore, the salvation of every sinner who is saved has been foreordained by God. All who are saved are predestined to it. God foreordains the salvation of his elect. But what about the flip side? Right? Does God foreordain the damnation of other men? Yes. Romans 9.22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He's patient, but there are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Or another translation, even the wicked for the day of disaster. Jude 4 says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, these are heretics in the church, who long ago, long ago, were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, this is a hard pill to swallow for many, and I sympathize. I really do. But the Word of God is clear. Just as God foreordains the salvation of his elect, he also foreordains the damnation of other men. Now, this brings many questions to our minds. I have spent a lot of time walking through this, uh, and, and that is understandable. I'm going to tell you I won't answer these quest those questions right now, uh, for it is not the purpose of this sermon to flesh out the justice of God in predestining some men to salvation and others to damnation. It's not the scope of this sermon. But know this. Both the salvation and damnation of sinners has been foreordained by God. We've just read multiple texts that teach us this. So then we see that God's decree extends to the big stuff. God's decree concerns eternal matters of salvation and damnation. Let's now consider the normal stuff, the second category. And here I'm referring to everyday events of life, right? Births, um, Regular events in your life, actions, abilities, nature, and deaths. Does God foreordain all of these things? Now, to answer this question, a beloved text comes to mind. I mean, beloved by like all Christians. Uh, but it's one that many Christians have not through, uh, thought through very deeply. What, what they'll do, and we're really good at this as 21st century uh, Christians, we will take the sentiment from a verse and leave all of the meat and implications of it behind. Like, oh, this one makes me feel good, right? It's like, I, that's all I'm taking is the feel good, and I'm not thinking about anything else. And here's the verse, Psalm 139, verse 16. Psalm 139 is an excellent psalm. Lots of people love it. 
Verse 16 says this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of, or there was none of them. This statement is so sweeping and all-encompassing that it staggers our imagination. The psalmist tells us that before you and me, before you ever lived a day, God had written every one of your days in his book. Brothers and sisters, that is everything that happens in your lives. The word of God says everything is written beforehand. Everything is planned by God. Your birthday, your death day, the family you were born into, your spouse, your job, your abilities, your education, your miscarriage, the birth of your children, your sicknesses, your health, your intelligence, the day of your conversion, who would preach the gospel to you, the moment that you were born again, the church you would join, your trials, your suffering, your, your friendships, your joys, your food, your hunger, your wealth, your poverty, your successes, your failures, right down to what the weather would be like each day. Where does it mention weather here? Well, hear me out. Whether it would shine or rain or snow on you, that's part of your day, isn't it? And all of your days are written down in his book. Everything. I can't stress that enough. Everything was written. This passage, Psalm 139, 16, is just as exhaustive as Ephesians 1, 11. It covers everything. If, if everything in every person's life is written before they are born, then literally everything in the world is decreed by God beforehand. There's no getting out of it. So yes, the normal stuff is foreordained by God. But what about the small stuff? This is actually one of my favorite parts of the sermon, I think. Uh, consider Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This one is a killer. This one is a killer to any idea that God has not decreed literally all things that come to pass. The lot, what is that? Dice. Dice. I don't know if any of you were degenerates that used to shoot dice in the alley, but I was. Right? The dice that are cast into the lap are determined by God. Know this. Write it down. Yahtzee is a perfect game for Calvinists. <laughs> so I couldn't resist. The dice roll has been predetermined. That's what the proverb says. It me this means then that the most insignificant, seemingly random. What is more random than rolling dice? The most insignificant, seemingly random things are foreordained by God. Every single table in Las Vegas foreordained by God. As John Piper says, again, I'm quoting a lot of people this evening. He says, every time that my wife reaches her hand into the Scrabble bag, the Lord has determined which one of us needs to win and lose. It's true. And that leads us to confess that the big things must be foreordained as well. If God cares enough to foreordain the dice roll, how much more does he foreordain the weighty matters? So, does God foreordain literally everything that comes to pass? Yes. Absolutely and undeniably, yes. Does chance exist in God's world? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Chance is for atheists and heretics, and we are neither. 
So we confess that God foreordains all things. Now, uh, uh, let me take a minute and address something. I know that some want to argue against this truth. I'm dedicated to this doctrine, and I have days where I want to argue against some of this stuff. That I'm confessing my own sin here. Some want to say, that's unfair. Or, why would God foreordain this? Or, why would God foreordain that? This doesn't seem right to me, especially with regard to salvation and damnation. And there is a passage that addresses such thoughts, and I recommend it to you. Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Brothers and sisters, I mean this with all of the pastoral warmth that I can muster. This world is God's world. He is the potter. And everyone and everything in this world is his clay. He is free and righteous and good to do whatever he wants with all that he has made. He himself is the definition of goodness. He is the definition of righteousness. So then all that he does is righteous and good. And we need, myself included, even the most staunch Calvinist needs to be reminded of this. We need to recognize that ourselves and our lives are clay in his hands. God is God and we are not. And we need to know our place and humble ourselves before the potter. I was reading a, a prayer from a Puritan and I was just shocked. I think he had lost someone, like maybe a child, and he was sick. And he said, oh God, you are the potter, I am the clay, and you have not dealt with me nearly as harshly as I deserve. And I thought, I don't think I would have prayed that way. What is that? That is a man who has recognized God is God and he can do as he wills. We need a dose of that. But now having established that God foreordains all that comes to pass, it's now fitting for us to consider something else. What kind of foreordination is this? What do I mean by that? Uh, what is the nature of God's decree? What's the, what kind of decree is it? And I have some things I want to go through briefly. First, God's decree is sovereign and free. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. And that means that he decreed whatever he pleased to decree. The point here is that God's foreordination, as I said in the introduction, is not dependent upon his creatures or his creation. God does not look down the corridors of time and then foreordain according to what he saw his creatures would be like or do. That would not be free, would it? No, that, that would not be whatever he pleased. That would, be, that, that would not be according to the counsel of his will. In such a situation, our God would be bound. It would no longer be his purpose and will, but the purpose and will of his creatures that determined all things. His creatures then would functionally be God because it would be the creature who determined what God decreed. We absolutely cannot allow such a view of God for it is contrary to everything God says about himself in Scripture. God is God. God is God. Furthermore, consider his aseity. 
I'm going to glance over these notes real quick. Consider his aseity, right, that God is of himself. He is dependent in, uh, upon none in all regards. Brothers and sisters, he did not ask for help when he foreordained all things. He didn't ask for advice, and he didn't ask for permission. He is of himself in all things. As Vody Bauckham likes to say, God ain't running for God. Right? This isn't a democracy, it's a divine monarchy, and he does what he wills. His decree is of himself. A second thing about this decree is that it is eternal. As we've seen already, God predestines. He foreordains before the foundation of the world. Before time existed, he decreed. He decreed that time would exist. Right? It didn't exist apart from him. So God is not decreeing on the fly. What has been decreed has always been decreed by God. He is eternal, and so his decree is eternal. Third, this decree is wise. This is really important that we remember this. This has a lot of practical, that, that, that's very easy to see. This decree is wise. How could it not be? Consider the one who decreed. God is all wise. He has foreordained the best course of events for his world. He has organized everything perfectly according to his divine and inscrutable and unsearchable wisdom. To say otherwise is to blaspheme his character and his wisdom. He has foreordained the best course of events. He knows best and he has decreed best. Fourth, this decree is holy. Again, how could it not be? The one who decreed is holy, holy, holy. And as the Holy One, He can only do that which is perfectly good and righteous. Please hear me. You must be rooted in this if you're going to deal with the ramifications of God's foreordination of everything. There is no unrighteousness in His decree. There may be things that we do not understand and cannot reason our way through with our finite human abilities, but there is no unrighteousness in His decree. How do I know that? Because there is no unrighteousness in him who decrees. You have to know that. There is no unrighteousness in his decree. It is holy. Fifth, this decree is unchangeable. God himself is immutable, so his will is immutable. What God says will be, will be. He does not change, and so he is not in the business of changing his mind. Hear me on this. Let me reason with you for a moment. For God to change his decree would mean one or more of the following impossibilities. He now has a better idea, which means he's not all wise. Or he decreed the wrong thing, which means he's not holy. Or he decreed something that he cannot accomplish, which means that he is not omnipotent. And none of those things can be true. Therefore, God will never change his decree. Sixth, this decree will come to pass. Again, God is omnipotent and can do all his holy will. For him to not accomplish his own purposes would mean that he has been overpowered, and that is simply not possible. So his decree always comes to pass. Seventh, this decree, please tune back in here, this decree is none of our business. This decree is none of our business. God's decree is hidden from us. It is unknowable unless he has revealed some aspect of it in his word. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. What does that mean? Some things are secret. He doesn't tell you. They belong to him. 
But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has not revealed all that he has foreordained. He has simply revealed that all is foreordained. And it's not our business to search it out. It is hidden from us. Our duty is not to ponder what God has ordained for history. Our duty is actually much simpler. Live by what he has revealed. Do what he says. That's your duty. So some serious questions, this too, that came to mind. How do I know that I'm predestined to be saved? That is literally none of your business. Your business is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or this, how do I know that my child hasn't been predestined to die young? That's none of your business. Your business is to raise her right and cast your anxieties upon the Lord in prayer. You get the drift here? It's none of our business. Do what he says. Live according to his revealed will. He's given you enough to keep you busy. We are not to search into mysteries that are above our pay grade. Right? Rather, we are to do as the psalmist and quiet our souls. You remember Psalm 131? I think it's the shortest psalm in the whole book. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What does he say? I don't, I don't worry about things that are too big for me. I hope in the Lord instead. That's what we're to do. Now, now I want to take a minute to, to address a couple of questions that this doctrine raises in our minds. I know I've been up here for a minute, but it's the Lord's Day. You don't have anything else better to do. The first question, does this all mean that God foreordains sin? Yes. Absolutely yes. The, the most explicit example of this, and I could give you many, the most explicit example of this is about our Lord himself. Acts chapter 4, verses 20 and seven, 27 and 28 records a portion of a prayer of the early church. And there we read, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, the greatest sin of all time was predestined. The murder of the Son of God. And I'm not undoing the fact that he laid down his life, but nevertheless, he was unjustly killed by wicked men. Predestined. Predestined. This text teaches us explicitly that God foreordains sin. God's decree includes even sin. Secondarily, by resistless logic, we see that God must foreordain sin. Since he foreordains all things, and sin is something that comes to pass, then the sins of men have been foreordained by God. As John Edwards says, "'Tis biblical, tis reasonable." But this raises, raises a second crucial question. And this is the sticking point. This is the big one. Since God foreordains sin, does that make God evil or the author of sin? 
clearly no. But how? That's the next question. And I'll tell you up front, there are a great many books and many long conversations that we can have about this. I simply don't have time to answer the question in this sermon. And it is not the scope of this sermon to delve into this issue. But let me put something to you. I'm not going to leave you with nothing here. Let me put something to you as your pastor. Me and Stephen talk. I wanted to be more pastoral about this than to get into a big uh, uh, theodicy here. Before we can even begin to try to think through how God's foreordination of sin does not make him evil or the author of sin, we have to do something first. We have to first receive the word of God as the word of God. We have to first submit ourselves to what God has said. And with regard to this question, God has said three things in his word very clearly in so many places that I'm not even going to proof text them for you. One, he foreordains all things, including sin. Two, he is holy and the perfect hater of sin. Three, he does not tempt or have any fellowship with sin. The word of God says these things all over the place. And so our conclusion from the beginning is this. Ready? God must foreordain sin in a sinless, holy, and righteous manner. He simply must. He must or the Bible's wrong. Take your option. The Bible explicitly states those three things. He foreordains sin, he's a holy and perfect hater of sin, and he has no fellowship with sin. And so we must believe all three of those things before we even begin to try and answer the question of how do those things fit together. The Arminian denies the first one, that God foreordains sin, even though we've just seen that he clearly does. You get the point there. You deny one of those three points, you fall into error or damnable heresy down the road. We must confess and believe in our hearts that somehow, even if it is beyond our ability to understand, and that needs to be a category for your thinking, it may be beyond my ability to understand. Even if that's true, God foreordains sin in a sinless manner. This way of doing theology requires piety. It requires piety, it requires humility, and it requires implicit faith in what God has said in his word. We must rely upon the word of God and not our fallible, weak human abilities. You must receive the word. Bear with me here a little longer. We must come to a question like this, saying in our hearts, God, your word says that you foreordain sin and that you hate sin and are holy and have no fellowship with sin. So I believe all three of those things together. And even if I can't ever answer how those things are true at the same time, I will confess them because you have said them. Even if I, in my fallen human reason, can't put them together, I don't care. I believe what you have said because you have said it. That's how we have to start. Then and only then can we begin to attempt to untie the knots in our minds. We must first start with humble submission and reception of the word of God and then work from there.
and I'll be, I'll be straight up with you. If we can never get to the bottom of this or explain it in such a way as to satisfy human reason or curiosity, I don't have a problem with that as a Christian. I really don't. Right? And I'll be honest with you. Some days I read like the old reform guy's answers to this question. I'm like, yeah, like that is, that is super satisfying. And I don't know why anyone has a problem with that. Talk to me a month later and read the same argument back to me. And I'm like, man, like I feel like there's something more to it than that. I don't know if that's the best answer I ever heard. but I don't see a problem with that as a Christian. Let me explain. You can't explain the Trinity. <laughs> you can't explain it. You can't explain the hypostatic union of the divine and human natures of Christ. We can't. We can confess it, but we can't explain it. We simply take all that God's word says, and we believe it, and then we distill it down into confessions about our triune God and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we cannot explain how God is one in essence and three in persons try you'll become a heretic we can't explain how the human and divine natures are united together in the one person we can't we can't explain everything in the bible but we can believe and confess it and why is that i'm not asking you to be blind here i'm asking you to trust god the one who is beyond your comprehension and cannot lie and believe that he has revealed truth in his word We do that with the Trinity and the hypostatic union, and the same is true about God's hatred of sin and his simultaneous foreordination of sin. So Christian, let me say this. Before you take up the pen to do theology, make sure that you are first on your knees in front of the book. Make sure you do that first. We are not rationalists. We do not believe unless we can reason through it to, the, to our uh, liking we don't believe that, it, that that is the standard for truth. The book is the standard for truth. We have to start there. We have to start there. Now, with all that said, let's turn now to consider some application, and I will be brief. First, Christian, trust him. Trust him. You can trust him. Since God has foreordained all things, you can rest assured that all things happen for a reason. And listen, that's not a religious platitude. I see it getting mocked in our culture. Everything happens for a reason. Shut up. No, it doesn't. And that makes my blood boil. Don't you take that from me. Don't you take the hope away from a Christian. Everything happens for a reason. How do we know that? Because God foreordained everything. And he's not arbitrary. So know that not one thing befalls you, whether pleasure or pain, that is meaningless or purposeless. God has a purpose for all things. He controls it all. So let God's decree be the pillow on which you lay your head at night. Trust him. Trust him. Second, let God's decree have a sanctifying effect upon you. Not just in your trusting him, that for sure, but knowing that everything that comes upon you in life comes from his decree. Listen, that's a sanctifying thought. That's a sanctifying thought. Whatever happens to me, God foreordained, right? What, here's some implications, just two. All good things are from him. If I really have a working understanding of that every single day, moment to moment in my life, my life will be one of perpetual thanksgiving, will it not? I have oatmeal in my bowl. Why? You foreordained that I would have food, Lord. Thank you. I have a living child. Why? Because you foreordained that I would have a child. Thank you. My car started this morning. You foreordained that my car would start. Thank you. 
We will live in perpetual gratitude and thanksgiving to God if we understand his foreordination. But then on the negative side, to know all trials are foreordained. How much more would we endure suffering in a godly manner if we knew that he had ordained it for us? Would we complain as much? Would we allow ourselves to lose our tempers or would we say, all right, God, this is what you wanted for my day. Let's do it. Help me. This should have a sanctifying effect on us. Third, let God's decree lead you to worship him. This is very simple here, but I want you to remember his decree is the decree of your salvation. You were predestined to be adopted to him through Jesus Christ from all eternity. The work of Christ on your behalf to live and die in your place to save you was decreed from all eternity. The day, oh, what a blessed thought, the day you would hear and believe the gospel was decreed from eternity. Your preservation and perseverance to the end has been decreed from all eternity. And your final glorification that one day you will behold Christ face to face and be freed from the very presence of sin has been decreed from eternity. Worship this one. Worship this sovereign God. Everything you have, everything you are, from your breath to your final salvation has been decreed by him. Worship him. May God grant us hearts to receive this truth and glory in the God who is sovereign over everything. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. That you just, you've, you, you've just told us about yourself this evening. And we're grateful for it. And God, though there are many hard things for us to wrestle with, many questions maybe that we can never answer. Nevertheless, Lord, nevertheless, you are who you are. You did not tell Moses, uh, I am whatever you want me to be. You said, I am that I am. Help us to receive you for who you are. And not, and not begrudgingly, but glorying in that you are the sovereign king. Have mercy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.